Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Cardiff. Welcome to Wales, if this is your first time. Um, the sun always shines in Cardiff, so those of you who don't realise, come back. <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to be hosting um, this evening here at Cardiff. Um, colleagues of mine, I know, have been connected with um, Skellen and with Mental Health Nurse and Academics for a long time. Ben and Linda are here. I'm sure you'll get a chance to catch up with them later. So it's a real pleasure. It's also, I'm particularly touched, actually, to be invited to chair tonight because um, Anna Ibusi and I worked together many, many years ago, 92-ish or something like that, and so it's a real treat to see Anne again. And um, I can't see Kevin Gornay here yet, but... Oh, hello. So, and um, Professor Gornay, um, I met at my first conference, and you chaired my first presentation, so thank you for that. That was great. Um, first housekeeping. Um, most of you will have called into the um, rooms upstairs, the committee rooms upstairs, um, which is where we're going to be having uh, refreshments, uh, buffet and wine at eight. So that's upstairs. There, um, there's toilets just outside here on the left in the corridor. Should there be a fire alarm, it's not a test. We are required to evacuate, so there's an exit there. I feel like an air hostess now. So exits, both sides. Um, and um, if anyone should need a lift um, to go up and down the stairs, there is a lift just out there on the left-hand side. Um, so Cardiff has, ha has a strong history and strong connection with mental health nursing. Um, we originally started with an integrated general and mental health degree programme. Ben will remind me how many years ago, a long time ago. But we've rolled with the changes, and as everyone else has. And we still provide an undergrad programme with about 200 undergrad students currently, currently doing well. Um, we also have a good doctoral programme with some fantastic recent completions. Um, colleagues in the room, Gavin John has just completed doing um, an inpatient CAMS project about keeping in touch. So he finished earlier this year. Um, Alicia, also in the room, uh, looked at the experiences of mothers of, of adults with um, schizophrenia. And um, I'm not sure, Fortune might be with us on a live stream, but she's not in the room. And she did something on recovery practices in adult mental health services. So some great completions um, uh, this year. And we have a great research portfolio, I guess, looking at um, children, adults, and older people's uh, mental health services. So the way that their services are, are organized and designed. Um, and that's our sort of trajectory. Um, we're really proud of our colleagues in the team. Our mental health team is um, full of people from various specialties, from the military, from children's mental health, from older people, from community. And lots of us try and stay connected to clinical practice in one way or another. So some people still see clients, still do family work, do consultancy, or do projects with the local community, such as um, awareness development um, in, in one of the local parts of Cardiff, actually, Cringetown. So we, we try and keep connected. So that's a great, great, I suppose, characteristic of our team. 
And just a little something before we, we move on to our speakers. For those of you who have not yet not been to Cardiff before, I'd um, invite you to not walk very far, actually. If once you go outside the building, it's probably a five to ten minute walk, and you get close to the Millennium Stadium. For those of you who are interested in rugby and or um, concerts, um, Cardiff Castle's out there. For those of you who like Gavin and Stacey, that was filmed five miles that way. And... Um, there's often kind of celebrities, the A-listers and the Z-listers, kind of we bump into them in the street around here, so that's good too. So one of, I suppose one of the joys of hosting the Scala Lecture is as an institution we get the opportunity to determine a special award. And our special award, um, we uh, are inviting... Uh, Trudy Peterson, she's going to come and, and talk to us now. And, and Trudy Peterson is someone who celebrates mental health nursing. She's a mental health nurse, but she's also a performance poet. So um, thank you, Trudy. Thank you very much. Just press the right buttons. That would help, wouldn't it? Okay. Up a little bit with that. I don't normally do this, stand behind the lectern. I'm normally in the pub somewhere full of drunk people who are heckling. <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> also, most of my poems are quite rude and quite funny, but I changed my mind for this one, so this is serious. Um, I was asked to do a poem um, for, for this event, and it started off. I, I was trying to think about, you know, when somebody says to you, oh, you're a mental health nurse, what do you do? And it's really hard sometimes to just encapsulate it, isn't it? Because we do lots of things. So I wanted to do a poem about what I thought being a mental health nurse was and who we are. But it actually morphed, as I was doing it, it morphed into as much about the people that we care for as well and the people that we have cared for because I think we, we kind of get interconnected. So it's called We Are the Locksmiths. Can you hear me okay? Am I too far away? Yeah, okay. Oh, you're quiet. You're not like a room full of drunks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we are the locksmiths. Who are we? We are the locksmiths. Filing blanks. A millimetre shaved off here, an extra notch cut there. From description, from memory. Seeking perfect facsimiles for lost keys to hearts and to minds. Trying to find that perfect fit, waiting for that satisfying click that opens or seals. Our hands have calluses wrought with the trying of turning. We are the listeners of language, observers of symbols, looking for patterns, making meaning from shapes, Voicing the voiceless, often lost in translation to medical jargon. Some things can only be heard, they cannot be explained. We are the sin eaters, absorbing, absolving. Thoughts sometimes dangerous and bleak, drawn out from crevices deep. We soak them up, eat, until they are part of our being. Look closely. You can see them. 
in the flecks of our irises, in steamed breaths on early morning shift chill air. Listen, you can hear them there in the rhythm of our hearts, the pulse of our veins. We remember their stories, their faces, their names. We are the carriers of weights, filling our pockets with pebbles and rocks, beachcomber finds, decorating office desks neatly placed in line. Some we hold a while, palm stones, worn by time. In amongst them, gemstones, rare. We wear them on our breast, encased in gold, precious opals, rubies, fiery red. Memento mori of long careers. Harder than a diamond, heavier than lead. And what do we do? Well, we hold it together when systems are breaking. We stand firm when foundations are shaking. We are the believers, faith leapers, gatekeepers. We are the torchbearers. We are the hope seekers. We are the thinkers, the leaders, the wise ones, the old hands, the safe hands, the neophyte young ones. Birth from the workhouse and the asylum. Look at us now, how far we have come. This profession is hard won. And what of our future? What will we become? In a hundred years, who will stand here and say with pride, I'm a mental health nurse? Colleagues, you are where the future lies. What will we become? What will you decide? I actually forgot. I actually forgot to say something. That was dedicated. Completely forgot a dedication. That was dedicated to. Um, is there anybody from Oxford here? No. Oh, excellent! Somebody I can pick up. Wonderful. Um, that was dedicated to a gentleman called Tom Christian. No, it's okay. Don't worry. Nobody else knew either. Um, Tom Christian, 99 years ago, was the first UK mental health nurse to go on the register. 100 years next year, Oxford. I'm available. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you very much, Trudy. Trudy, I'm going to ask you to come back up. <laughs> so, um, could I um, ask Alicia Stringfellow, so Professional Head of Nursing, Mental Health Nursing at Cardiff, um, whether you would present the plaque to Trudy, please? Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Trudy. Thank you for the photograph taken as well. Thank you for Anna. <laughs> okay, thank you. So um, we're going to move on now, and I'm going to invite um, Steve Clark. Steve um, works for the Welsh Assembly Government and is the um, mental health nursing officer attached to the um, chief nursing officer team. Is that right? Correct. So welcome, and um, we'll look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, Trudy. Talk a galon. Um, uh, amazing, beautiful poem. Thank you uh, so much. 
So, um, Steve Clark, to you, um, Swedish organization Yachid Medal to the Slow Committee, um, So, I'm a mental health nursing officer with uh, Welsh Government, and I work just next door in that horrible bunker you can just see uh, across the way. And Kroisweto, I Kaidith, I Committee as well. So, uh, welcome, add my welcome to you to uh, Wales and to. Uh, and Cardiff and Croesmari Bother Line as well. So welcome to people who are uh, tuning in online. Um, so, um, firstly, an apology. I'm clearly not Sue Tranka, the uh, Chief Nursing Officer for Wales. Uh, Sue really wanted to be here tonight, but sadly she is unwell. Um, so you have uh, me as a, as a stand-in. Um, Sue um, was really delighted to be asked to come and speak this evening and was really looking forward to hearing about Anne's work on, um, on racial trauma, particularly in, in a mental health context, uh, but was also really looking, looking forward to uh, celebrating uh, Mary's career as well and uh, how amazing it is to be here tonight to be with you to celebrate those two women and their uh, amazing careers that they, they've had and, and the huge contribution they've made to, to mental health uh, nursing. So it is really a, a huge honour to be here. Um, so I thought I'd, I'd say a couple of things really. The first is just to say something about the role of the CNO here in Wales, which is a little bit different. And then to talk to you a little bit about the priorities that we have up till 2024 and some of the other things that are going on in Welsh government as well, but uh, it'll literally take about four minutes, so I'm not going to I'm not going to labour the point. Um, CNO in Wales is is a, a unique role with many different hats, uh, but there's three key things that Sue does uh, and does exceptionally well. Uh, the first, obviously, she's the head of the nursing midwifery professions here in Wales, and Sue, interestingly, is uh, many qualified as a midwife, a mental health nurse, a community nurse, an adult nurse. So. Uh, she uh, not only has that uh, adult nursing brief, but has uh, trained in, in many different areas as well. <clears throat> so she's head of all those professions uh, here in Wales and is the voice of nursing in, in, at the centre uh, of government here. Uh, and she's uh, chief advisor to, to Welsh Government, so directly to ministers and the first minister here on all things uh, nursing, quality and safety. Um, and then, probably just as importantly as the other two roles, she's also the Executive Director of NHS Wales as well, so the Nurse Director uh, in that uh, part of the system too. So it's a huge job, and, uh, and uh, Sue does, uh, does an amazing job. I'm not just saying that because she's my boss, uh, but anybody that knows Sue knows just uh, what a truly transformational uh, person uh, she is and has been for, for Wales since she's arrived. Um, she's a, an amazing super connector and just a, an absolute force of nature. So, uh, you know, I've, I'm very privileged again to, to work for her. In terms of the priorities, there's five key things, uh, and I'm not going to again labour the point on these, but you can, if you type in CNO Wales priorities into any reliable search engine, you will find uh, the web pages on that. But broadly, it's about leading the professions, uh, improving the workforce, making uh, nursing midwifery attractive, um, improving outcomes, and then something about professional equity and uh, healthcare equality as well. And I won't say very much about those things, just, uh, just some highlights in, in terms of what we do on those particular priorities. Um, but there's a particular 
um, thing here in Wales. Since um, devolution, Wales has started to kind of get confidence politically and has started to do some really interesting things uh, politically and legislatively. So here we have the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which tends to steer a lot of decision-making that we have uh, at a government level and a lot of the legislation that passes through the Senate. Um, but that basically asks us and indeed tells us to think about the future generations when we're making decisions in, in public service here. So we're constantly thinking about not just the here and now, but actually the future and the future and the future beyond that. And, um, and, and that's such an important thing here because uh, it makes sure that we're kind of grounded in, um, in sustainability and, and many other things as, as we uh, make decisions. Um, in, in the context of, of the CNO office, then there's, um, uh, there's something particularly lovely, which is the harnessing of the, of the, of the previous generations of the executive directors of nursing. So all of the EDONs that retire Aren't, aren't allowed to retire, basically. They are put back in the harness and, and uh, brought back into service as uh, mentors and coaches for the next generation. And a great example of that is the lovely Claire Bevan, who was the executive director of nursing in the ambulance service, who's now mentoring a whole group of um, nurse digital scholars, three of which are mental health nurses, um, through their Florence Nightingale Foundation program for this year. Um, but there's lots of things like that happening. Uh, on, on that generational basis. Um, so we have a mental health strategic workforce plan here in Wales, and that is now in the delivery stages, and there's seen some really interesting um, uh, actions in terms of increasing uh, mental health nursing placements uh, at HEIs. The task now is to uh, really focus on improving the fill rate for those places and retention of those students in those programmes. Um, and that's something that we're consistently focused on with our partners in healthcare, education and improvement Wales. Um, and then in terms of uh, healthcare outcomes, we're focused on um, developing a quality and safety dashboard for mental health, um, some really interesting work on mental health outcome measures, and finally a mental health patient safety programme, which is just about to kick off as well. <clears throat> and then the last thing I'll probably just say about, about all the work that's going on, we're in a strategy cycle here now in Wales as well, so we're just about um, to really go into high gear on that work and uh, with the idea of, of having a new mental health strategy for Wales and a new uh, self-harm and suicide strategy by the end of this year. So huge amounts going on in the mental health space with a relatively small resource. Um, but what's striking is the kind of dedication and commitment from policy team and from every, everybody across the system to do well with that. Um, so there's a lot going on in the CNO office, and we're an ambitious and sometimes impatient bunch. Um, that's because we know mental health and mental health services aren't where they need to be and should be in Wales, and we're not doing what we, what we really can do for, for the population of Wales. And we have immense challenges ahead of us, not just in delivering what I've just said, but in terms of meeting the mental health needs of a, of a population that's really... Uh, poorer and sicker than, than uh, probably the majority of the rest of the UK. So with those immense um, challenges, we have to also hold in our heads um, what somebody like Don Berwick says, I guess. You know, and Don Berwick, for those of you who don't know, is the president uh, emeritus of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He's kind of like the guru. He's the, he's the daddy of uh, or anything to do with improvement in, in healthcare. And Don Berwick is also a, a Bevan Commissioner here in Wales, so he works with the Bevan Commission on, on improvement in Wales. And he says something really interesting about Wales, uh, the fact that Wales is the right size 
to get a really interesting shift in terms of how a health economy works and how it, how it improves itself. So it's not too big, it's not too small, it's that kind of Goldilocks zone for, for healthcare improvement. It's got a really communitarian, cohesive um, culture here. And uh, he's been here a few times and has always said that's kind of quite an important thing when you're trying to communicate with people about uh, healthcare and change, uh, that you have that cohesion and, and that community commitment behind you. And the last thing he says, there's a lot of political will and, um, and the right plan behind it. So, you know, our ministers are squarely uh, and, and right behind us uh, all the way in terms of uh, helping us make change. So all the right things are in place. It's just how we kind of harness all of that and, and do the right things in the right sort of way. Um, so it's daunting sometimes, but mostly exciting uh, working for Welsh Government and, and the Office of the CNO. Um, and it's a great uh, place to work in terms of um, forward-thinking people who are energised and committed to doing things differently. So join us. Uh, those of you who don't work here already. So I'll stop there and say Jochen Bauer, Fiona. Thank you very much, Steve. It's really, um, it's really heartening, actually, to hear about the way things are moving forward quickly uh, with the new strategies in uh, hoping to come online this year. And, of course, it's a real dilemma for all of us across the country, isn't it, about recruit, recruiting students and recruiting enough good quality students and then translating that into into the workforce, into a workforce that's uh, properly supported. And um, so, so thank you for that, Steve. Um, I'd like now to invite uh, Dr. Gary Winship um, to join me here, uh, uh, Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham. And he's going to uh, offer an introduction to the Scullin Lecture. But we're also um, very lucky this evening to be joined by Eileen Skellen's nephew, Paul Forte, who has also agreed to pop up and say a few words. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, introduction, Nicola. And with, with Trudy and with Steve being the A-listers, I must be the Z-lister, I think, in the list. <laughs> Um, just to say a couple of words, you may or may not see a family resemblance, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, but welcome to the Auntie Eileen Lecture, as I like to call it. I've, I've been to two or three of these over the years, and it's a great privilege uh, uh, to be here, and thank you very much indeed. And also for keeping the whole thing going, I think, which is it's a wonderful tribute to, uh, to Eileen uh, and, uh, and all the work that she did in, in, in setting the scene and things like that. I can't, uh, I'm not involved in mental health services myself, although my entire career has been in planning and managing health services uh, and lecturing in that area as well. So I like to think there's some sort of connection. And most recently I was doing work in Abertawi, Bromorganwe, as it was then, and in Cav uh, Kumtav as well. And one other last thing just to say is that the painting itself, that was painted by my mother, uh, my, by mother's second husband, Bob Beatty. So there's a family connection even still going there. Uh, and Eileen's two sisters, Margaret and my mother, Elizabeth, uh, they made careers in nursing themselves all the way through. So there's, uh, it's lovely to see you all here, and please carry on the great work. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Nicola. 
Dr. Anne Ayabusi is a registered mental health nurse, forensic psychotherapist and group analyst, and worked full-time in NHS forensic services for 30 years, and this included consultant nurse roles in the women's services of two high-secure hospitals. Uh, early in her career, she was the clinical nurse manager at the Caswell Clinic in Bridgend and was amongst the team who set up the first purpose-built uh, forensic unit in Wales. She completed a PhD at Middlesex University with psychoanalytic support from the Tavistock Clinic and her thesis focused on therapeutic relationships with people diagnosed with personality disorder and is currently principal director, consultant nurse and psychotherapist at the Psychological Approaches CIC where the focus of her work is providing training and consultancy to staff groups in forensic offender care and complex needs services. And also sits on the Board of Trustees at the Institute of Group Analysis and is the member for anti-discrimination and intersectionality. She's also a board member and joint chair of the training committee for the Forensic Psychotherapy Society. It's impressive enough, but alongside all of these contributions, Anne has made to clinical teaching and practice strategic developments in our field. She's also published numerous papers, chapters, and books. And her lecture this evening, which is going to be thought-provoking, uh, is a topic of a book she is completing about forensic psychotherapy uh, and racial trauma. She is a seasoned speaker at conferences, uh, both in the UK and abroad, and delivered the 11th Maxwell Jones Memorial Lecture at the Royal Society of Medicine. She is enormously esteemed, and I might add, loved by colleagues. Uh, Gwen Adshead um, heard that Anne was delivering the Scanlon Lecture and told me, Anne, quote, is a great teacher from whom I have learned so much. I think she was one of the very first people I met who really understood the plight of the patients in high-secure hospitals. And when I have a tough job to do thinking about complex organisations, I ask for Anne, and she never fails me. What a great colleague and teacher. End of quote. And likewise, our mental health nursing colleague, Chris Scanlon, sent this message. Um, Anne is intelligent, conscientious, tireless, um, with a huge capacity to think about what many find unthinkable, to bear what many find unbearable, and to love those that many, many find unlovable and to do so with dignity and with kindness. A wonderful colleague, a great friend with whom I stand in solidarity. End of quote. Jen French, from the moment I met her at the Caswell Clinic, Anne is my hero, and because of her, I've succeeded. I can't thank her enough, and I love her. Um, Anne Jackson says, uh, she's a beautiful speaker, there's Anne. Uh, so no pressure there. I've known Anne probably for more than 25 years now. I recall, and I don't know if you recall, I've, we first met when we were competitively shortlisted for a consultant nurse post at Broadmoor. Um, and we had a day of activities with all of the candidates uh, spending time together. It was a group interview of sorts in the sort of tradition of those sorts of activities. Uh, um, Anne won and was appointed, um, and quite rightly so. I saw then that Anne was commanding and gentle in requisite measures resourceful and incisive, uh, and an altogether beautifully compelling force of mental health nursing nature. Uh, I am delighted and honoured uh, to introduce you this evening, Anne, uh, as the 2023 Skellen Memorial Lecture.
I'll just test this. Can you hear me? Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Gary. That was overwhelming, actually, in, in, in the best possible way. It was lovely. Thank you. Uh, and to all the people who um, also um, contributed to that introduction. So I am very pleased. I am nervous, actually. I'm not usually a nervous speaker, so there's something um, about this particular um, um, opportunity really that means a lot to me. Um, it means a lot to me as a nurse to have had the honour of being invited to deliver um, this um, Eileen Skellern lecture uh, for this year. Um, it means a lot to me to be in Wales. Um, as you heard, I did work here uh, only for a couple of years of my quite long uh, career as a mental health nurse um, but as I have said many times in my um, when, I, when I've spoken about my career and the journey uh, I tend to say um, at the Caswell Clinic I went to the mountaintop and I saw the promised land in terms of what uh, forensic nurses um, which I, I think that's what I am in my heart and will be uh, for all of my days, really. And I saw what forensic nursing can do and the difference that forensic nursing can make uh, to um, you know, people in a particular predicament um, who, um, as Christopher Scanlon said in his message, are not the most lovable people. Um, and of course, forensic, as forensic nurses, we, ha we find care and we find compassion. Uh, and we tend to have to usually go the extra mile uh, to support people in um, unbearable positions really to salvage something of a life and we do that for the people but we do it also in the service of public safety and that also has to be remembered so um, the other thing is the other reason being here means a lot to me is because I um, have Welsh heritage my mother was Welsh from North Wales um, <laughs> and um, we uh, lost um, the last um, member of my mother's side of the family um, two years ago today, actually, uh, against the backdrop um, of COVID. So um, I feel, it, it feels important to me. It feels that my um, Welsh family would have been very proud. Um, so... All of that being said, um, I will begin this uh, lecture on this subject that isn't an easy, it's not an easy subject to talk about at the best of times, I must say. Um, and um, in, at a time when, when the country really is, is shocked and mourning following uh, the horrendous um, murders in Nottingham this week as well, it makes it all the more difficult, really, but I shall uh, proceed. Um, so this issue about uh, racial trauma, it feels as though racial trauma is a term that has only really recently found its way into our sort of everyday parlance, if you like, more or less into the mainstream, I would say, uh, now. Thank you. 
Um, and um, after the Skellen lecture, lecture last year, uh, which Gary delivered, I think the person who may have closed the event said something about um, if, um, you know, somebody looked at where we are now, um, many years from now, uh, they wouldn't look too kindly on, uh, this is how I remember it, on the position with regard to people from minority ethnic groups, black and minority ethnic groups, with regard to mental health. So when I had an opportunity to, um, uh, to speak here, uh, I felt, well, maybe it would be a good thing to try and pick that issue up and have a look at it um, in some depth. I say some depth, I mean, uh, going behind this list, this list that has been around for maybe 60 years that I know of, um, with regard to the disproportionality that we find uh, in mental health with regard to um, black people in particular, but also people from other minority ethnic groups. So disproportionately criminalized, um, detained, um, subject to restraint and use of force, um, disproportionately killed or dying during restraint whilst mentally distressed, importantly. Um, with, with high, uh, disproportionately diagnosed with psychosis, including schizophrenia, um, and so on, and so on. Um, so this list has, you know, um, becomes the issue to my mind. Um, and I thought, let's see if we can go behind that list, that list a little bit, and maybe understand why we um, keep on referring to it and not going much further. So saying that, I am going to look at a, a few numbers. I don't want to fall into the trap, which is very easy to do, which is to just look at numbers for uh, the period of time that I'm here. But I'm going to look at a few numbers just to set the um, scene, really. So this is, um, these are recent 2021-22 uh, figures with regard to... Um, ethnicity and uh, imprisonment in, in adult prisons. So as you can see, I've highlighted there, black people make up 4% of the population. Um, and usually we're talking about people who identify as black British, black Caribbean, black African, um, and um, but make up 13% 30 of the prison population. So that's more than three times um, the uh, proportion of the population. When it gets to, comes to young offenders, it's even worse. So um, although the, the definition is slightly different in that the definition used is black and minority ethnic as opposed to just black, but nevertheless, 56% uh, of children in young offenders institutions and secure training centers are from black and minority ethnic groups. And in... London, when you look at London in a, a male young offenders institution, we find 71% of the population there black and minority ethnic. With regard to the Mental Health Act, um, five black groups, so again we're talking about 
largely black British, black Caribbean, black African, make up um, five times more, uh, are five times more likely to be detained under a section than are um, white groups. And that's compared to uh, percentage in the population. So, one of the things that might feature in this picture might be uh, racial trauma, which, as I say, is a relatively um, uh, new, um, I, I think, to our sort of UK mental health context. I think it's a, a kind of new uh, sort of narrative that's emerged. Um, uh, so when we talk about racial trauma then, um, we're really talking about a number of things. We're not talking about any one thing. So we're not talking about um, an incident or um, a particular presentation. We're talking about a number of things. So here's a definition by Williams and colleagues that I think kind of captures it more or less. Uh, it, it can be defined as the cumulative re-traumatizing impact of racism on a racialized individual. And it can include individual acts of racial discrimination combined with systemic racism and typically includes historical, cultural and community trauma as well. So it's many faceted, uh, really. And importantly, the thing with racial trauma is it doesn't stop. And that's an important thing. It, it, it goes on through the life cycle repeatedly. And in many ways, it's this cumulative effect. So one issue in itself might not be too bothersome or might not, um, you know, create um, significant distress, but it's the ongoing nature of it that's really um, makes it so uh, problematic, really. And so breaking that down a little more then, um, we can think about here and now racialized events. Um, so they, that might be racial abuse. Um, and there is actually a particular uh, construct that's been developed by some very, very persistent researchers, Carter and Peters, uh, in the USA, where they de have defined, uh, I, I would think about it as a kind of condition, or, um, which they call race-based traumatic stress, which re requires um, the uh, race, you know, an act of um, uh, abuse, say, or an incident that targets a something uh, about a person's race, so colour, hair, something like that, uh, that has to be emotionally painful, has to occur suddenly, kind of uh, in a way that the person has no control over. Um, and it needs to lead to symptoms very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, repetition, intrusion, numbing, that kind of thing. So, so it could be that uh, a racialized event might be severe enough to create that kind of distress. Uh, but it might be the common or garden um, getting your name wrong or laughing at your name, uh, for example, or people... Um, pulling their uh, shopping bags closer when a black person walks past or locks the car door, that kind of thing. Uh, and and the, the, the cumulative effect of those um, microaggressions, as they're called, uh, can be very, very problematic uh, for people in terms of health. So some uh, researchers, um, uh, Geronimus in the 1990s and Professor David Williams, who I notice is... 
part of the UK Race Observatory as well now, which is good to hear. But they um, researched the impact of racism uh, from the perspective of um, uh, life expectancy and looking at why people from minority ethnic groups have, have a, a, a reduced life expectancy with black people having the most, um, you know, the, the greatest um, impact in that respect. Um, and found that when every other variable is taken account of, the one that makes the difference is racism and the stress of living with racism that literally wears down the nervous system. And they have this term for it, racial weathering. Um, so that's one dimension, if you like, of racial trauma. Um, another uh, dimension is the transgenerational aspect, whereby uh, people who, who spend their time studying and working with large groups, so societies, countries, nations in conflict, that kind of work, uh, would, would see um, the racism that, that's around today as the consequence of undigested, unprocessed, transgenerational racial trauma. And it could be argued that that becomes most visible in the criminal justice system and within secure mental health services. Um, as, um, uh, and this is a term that we use in group analysis, the location of disturbance. So this is an issue that's relevant to all of us. Um, but the, um, the, 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 most, the, the disturbance, if you like, the disturbance, the distress, the trauma sequelae, however you wish to frame it, becomes most clearly visible um, in a particular place. So just in the same way as uh, a family might have um, uh, an, an issue, a trauma or a distress, but it gets located in one individual who becomes ill. So in the same way, uh, systems within society can operate like that. And so I'm suggesting, as many people have before me, that this undigested racial trauma uh, that has been passed from generation to generation to generation um, is um, uh, most evident um, around criminality, I guess. And, um, and we can think about that as a location of disturbance. Um, intergenerational trauma. When we talk about intergenerational trauma, we're usually talking about trauma that's been passed on within families from one generation to another within a family. And transgenerational trauma, we're usually talking about large group traumas. Um, so the intergenerational element, um, community uh, or in-group trauma, so trauma that's uh, affected a particular group or community. Uh, and of course also um, internalised racism where people of colour and black people share kind of racist values that are turned um, on the self. So many, facet, man, many faceted. Um, another thing uh, from group analysis that I want to mention is the social unconscious. And the reason it feels important to mention this is because psychological theories, for the main part, are focused on the individual. Uh, what's wrong with the individual and their internal world and haven't um, uh, focused so much or taken account of, or in some cases, it seems deliberately um, avoided um, considering 
that that we carry which relates to the social world. So the idea that our unconscious has a social aspect to it uh, and is infused with the social and political. And so what happens in society also comes into, well, it comes into our minds and it comes into our relationships. It comes into our institutions, it comes into our groups. Um, that it carries our um, generational history of racialized or ethnic trauma. Uh, and I think there are few people who can go back very many generations before they find quite significant ethnic uh, or racial trauma. Um, uh, uh, and we carry that in our, uh, at an unconscious level within our minds, that's the theory. Um, and the point of it is, is that those um, uh, historical traumas can be reactivated in the here and now. And they can be reactivated um, at, at group level and at large group level. So hence, we can see, for example, around the world, conflicts that are taking place now that have their roots generations back, but they get activated by a, a here and now event, usually related to the leader. Um, also, uh, the social unconscious operates in this systemic way where it likes to um, identify a location of disturbance. Um, and, in, in, and we can see that in our smaller groups, can't we? In the, you know, the exemplar would be the scapegoat, I suppose, wouldn't it? Um, somebody who carries the burden of the wider group, the issues of the wider group. Um, and um, uh, experience around the social unconscious and even narrative that speaks to it is frequently uh, visceral. Is you know very um, painful, very difficult. Um, involves the vagus nerve, uh, which runs, um, as you'll know, down the front of our bodies and holds um, trauma, and and regressive, uh, in the sense of it's very easy to um, uh, end up in a split in in very polarized positions. Um, and, and that happens a lot around race and racism. It, it seems to fuel very, very strong emotional reactions uh, and often very strong reactions to silence and put a stop to thinking or discussion about it. Um, and also, um, you know, uh, the tendency to um, organise into splits. So. Um, you have an organization that's, that responds to deaths of black people that's called Black Lives Matter. And for many people, there's an, a, a guttural response to, to say all lives matter, whilst completely missing the, the subtleties, uh, really. Um, so um, my presentations uh, always have a James Baldwin quote, or most often they're not. So here's one where he's talking about um, uh, how the past is also the present, really. The great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us and are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways. And history is literally present in all that we do. And that's often um, regarded as quite a good um, description, really, of the social unconscious. Um, so thinking about what does this mean, then, um, uh, to people, how, how does this um, phenomena um, influence the disproportionality that we see in um, 
criminal justice and forensic settings? Um, and how does this location of disturbance come about? So um, I've, I've tried to look at a, a little bit, because this is a vast subject, and I'm trying to uh, get it into a relatively uh, short time slot. So uh, here's a flavor of a kind of developmental pathway. Bearing in mind um, intergenerational and transgenerational uh, phenomena that the child might also have. So here's a, uh, uh, there's a quite a famous um, test, if you like, called the Doll Test that was developed by uh, Mamie and Kenneth Clark in the 1940s, uh, whereby um, children are asked really about um, you know which race they prefer so the the typical sequence is that a black child is asked um, you know uh, is is uh, confronted if you like with a number of dolls uh, of different races you know different colors really meant to represent the different races so they ask the black child um, which is the good doll and they point to the white doll um, which is the bad doll, and they, pa they point to the black doll. This is the typical sequence. So which is the pretty doll, and they point to the white doll? Which is the ugly doll, and they point to the black doll? Which is the... Um, anyway, they end up saying, which one's like you? And then they point to the black doll, and then usually crumple sort of in, in distress. Um, so the idea being that um, by preschool age, really, uh, black children have internalized the idea that they're um, you know, inferior, really, in different ways, um, including um, that they're bad, particularly when compared to their white counterparts. So if we wonder why that might happen, uh, we can refer to a study that was done. Um, at, it's, it's from Yale, uh, Gilliam and colleagues. Um, and they uh, conducted an experiment. They um, asked preschool teachers and, and student teachers to observe challenging behavior in classrooms. Now, there was no challenging behavior going on, but the teachers uh, regardless of their race, um, started to track black pupils, particularly boys. So that's, you know, maybe is, helps explain one of the ways in which these children end up internalizing that they are bad at such a young age. Another term that's come into our uh, vocabula vocabulary fairly recently is adultification. And adultification is, has been described as a form of dehumanization, robbing black children of their innocence. Um, Goff uh, and colleagues um, conducted a very, very thorough, very impressive, I have to say, series of studies um, exploring this and the, the implications of it. Uh, and they found that, by and large, black boys are not afforded the privilege of innocence compared to their white peers. 
they're literally seen as older, by a, usually by about four and a half years. From the age of 10, they're seen as being about four and a half years older, which means that a 13-year-old is seen as an adult uh, by members of the public, but also by law enforcement um, agencies. Um, and so they're seen as older, they're seen as guilty, um, and also that use of force, including punishment and violence against them, is justified. Uh, so this is um, very, very serious. Um, because the thing with innocence is, is this is a period of uh, you know, human development when people are given leeway, when people are allowed to make mistakes. Uh, allowed to get things wrong because the idea is there's, there's time for them to, to learn and there's time for them to grow. And by the time they become adults, then they can take responsibility and be accountable for their actions. But during childhood, there's flexibility. And uh, research shows that isn't given to uh, black boys uh, in the same way as it is to um, white boys uh, in, in this study by Goth. Um, and disturbingly, what Goff found was, and his colleagues was, that it wasn't really biased, because we talk a lot about unconscious bias, don't we, these days as well. It wasn't bias or prejudice that predicted the, this um, differential with regard to age or the, um, you know, the, or that predicted use of force on children, but it was actually dehumanization. So they, they uh, used um, um, a kind of implicit association type um, intervention whereby the uh, participants in the research were, um, you know, it was possible to associate uh, or establish their association uh, to black boys with animals. Um, but of course, it wasn't any animal. It was a particular animal. Um, and that animal was an ape. And other research has shown this in relation to black people as well. Um, and just to say, just in case there's any doubt about the prevalence of which the association of black people and apes is present in our social unconscious, I've selected some images. So um, the woman in the blue um, top is called Rennie Hector. And she's a footballer for, or she used to play anyway for Tottenham Hotspur. Um, and she complained after a match that what that her um, opponents, the person, the woman who was marking her, was making monkey chants, um, and she complained about it after the match, and then was subject to horrendous trolling. And the image of the black woman there having a uh, a scan. Um, was one of the images that was sent to her. And if you have a look on the screen of that scan, you can see it's a monkey. Um, the inference being that the black woman's baby is actually a monkey. So we have um, our uh, black footballers when they, well, at home and away actually, but in certain parts of Europe in particular, when they're subjected to um, you know, continuous monkey chanting. Um, the picture with the Arsenal player, if you look um, in the left-hand corner, you'll see the banana skin, which is what gets thrown at our footballers. Um, so there's the, I think there's something about um, soccer 
and soccer matches that operates as a bit of a location of disturbance anyway, which, you know, for another day, I guess. Um, but also the picture of the Obamas there, that was um, featured in a Belgian newspaper just before the Obamas visited uh, the country. And of course, if you know anything about them, you'll know that they were often depicted as um, non-human primates or spoken about as such. And then we have the infamous um, image that Danny Baker uh, tweeted after Meghan Markle and Prince Harry had their first child as the royal baby leaves hospital. So just to make the point that this is highly prevalent, uh, this, this association of black people um, and um, monkeys or apes. So, we can turn to black girls then. So, Epstein uh, and colleagues from Georgetown Law, they um, replicated part of Goff's study, the, the part of it that um, looked at innocence. Um, uh, only, instead of black boys, they were looking at innocence, in the public's perception of innocence in relation to black girls, and what they found was that the public uh, found that black girls need less nurturing, less protection, less support, less comfort, are more independent, know more about adult topics, including sex, adultification. And we can think, well, that's an American um, you know, piece of research, except we have this incident um, of, uh, that came to the public uh, consciousness last year, uh, the incident concerning child Q uh, in, in the UK. Um, so if you're not aware of this, this is a, a girl of secondary school age, a black girl. Um, teachers believe they smelt cannabis on her and um, were concerned that she might be carrying drugs into the school. Uh, so they searched her, didn't find anything. The child cooperated. Uh, so they, um, in the absence of the school, the police liaison officer at the school, because um, they, uh, because of COVID, the liaison officer wasn't there. So they contacted them by phone and they said, call the police, the local police, which the, the teachers did at the school. The local police came in and strip searched in the school premises this child um, who was taken out of an exam uh, to do so. Uh, the details of the uh, search in which are provided in the report, in the safeguarding report, by um, Child Q's mother uh, describes the dehumanisation very clearly that that child was um, exposed to. And what I find particularly chilling is, as well is that she was then just sent back into her exam, no care provided. Um, and of course... Um, this child is, um, by all accounts, extremely traumatised uh, by this incident. Um, she has her um, uh, words included in the safeguarding report um, regarding how, you know, this is the language of trauma, isn't it? Um, somewhere where she was supposed to feel safe and taken away by people who were supposed to protect her, stripped her. Um, and whilst on a period, and on, on top of preparing for the most important exams of her life, she now has to struggle with trauma symptoms, basically. 
um, and her mother also um, has her words included in the report and makes the point very clearly about adultification. She was treated as an adult, she was searched as an adult. So the Children's Commissioner, outraged by that incident um, and um, following pleas from child Q to make sure no other child uh, goes through this, uh, requested through freedom of information uh, details from all the police forces in England and Wales about strip searching children. And the Children's Commissioner says in her report that she really didn't think that this happened very often, but actually, um, within two years, it happened almost 3,000 times. As with child Q, evidence, uh, lots of evidence of poor governance, um, where children were not afforded the safeguarding and um, protections, uh, such as having an appropriate adult present or a parent being informed about what happened, that, that, that didn't happen to the extent that it should have done. Um, the Children's Commissioner found that there was little consideration about the traumatic impact of this kind of intervention on children. The tendency was to forget that children were children, so there we have adultification. Um, in terms of numbers, 95% of the people um, strip searched were boys, um, at, with black children 11 times more likely to be strip searched than were white children. So if you can see how these experiences would build up, you know, what, what would it do to somebody inside to be, you know, disproportionately exposed to these kinds of experiences, the question traumatic experiences, really. And the worst um, outcomes, really, um, are um, deaths um, under restraint. Uh, so this is a, uh, details of a new report that's been produced by Inquest, which is a charity which focuses on deaths, um, you know, by the state, really, or in relation to the state. Uh, so they've interrogated um, the statistics that the police forces hold regarding um, deaths of people, black people. I think they're all black men, actually, that they looked at um, and found um, that those words that are so um, familiar now, aren't they, from the killing of George Floyd, the I can't breathe, that actually those have been the dying words of several black men in the UK who've died in the context of restraint. Uh, I think including and especially those with men in mental health crises, because certainly I've looked at a lot of these um, incidents, a lot of these men's deaths as part of my um, book that, that I'm writing, and it does seem that this is particularly li likely to occur when people are in mental health crises. Um, and it's and when people seem to really panic, which is unsurprising that people would panic, it seems as though the, the nervous systems got activated um, out of control and um, the response has been more and more and more restraint. And of course, people have died through, usually because there have been so many bodies on them, 
really, or the position that they've been put in. But the thing is that black people, are, 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 according to inquest, and these figures, of course, are contested, that the um, uh, black people are 6.4 times more likely uh, compared to their proportion of the population and seven times more likely than white people to die during or following police restraint, whether or not uh, they're arrested or detained. So that's the difference, whether they're arrested or detained. Those are the, if you like, where the extra figures uh, have been found by inquest. Um, the ones that get published include people who've been arrested or detained. But if you look at people where that hasn't happened, but they've still been restrained and die, then the figures climb up according to inquest. Now, this feels like an important uh, study. So, um, following um, the murder of uh, George Floyd, the Human Rights Council conducted a piece of um, inquiry, and they looked at 190 deaths of black people, um, unarmed black people, um, by law enforcement or in the context of law enforcement um, and uh, all over the world. Uh, and they found that um, these incidents happen uh, in countries that had former links to enslavement and colonization and where people of African descent have settled. That's where they happen. Um, that... Um, this is that they regarded as on the on part of the ongoing dehumanization of people of African descent, and it's rooted in the false social construction of race, which I hope we all realize it is a false construction, really, but very, very socially powerful. Um, um, th and it was used to justify institutions of slavery and colonization. So um, the Human Rights Council found that UN member states um, also that with the links, if you like, to, to the transatlantic trade in enslaved Africans and colonizations, also continue to deny or fail to acknowledge the existence of, um, I would say, uh, the transgenerational racial trauma and systemic racism. Uh, basically, and that systemic racism and enduring harmful and degrading associations of blackness with criminality and delinquency shape interactions of people of African descent with law enforcement and the criminal justice system. So the, the, the issues of dehumanization to me and uh, transgenerational trauma are very clear. Um, from that study, crystal clear, actually, if you read it, it's crystal clear, that it makes me wonder why uh, there's so much kind of difficulty um, uh, recognising this in everyday life. It's very crystal clear. In the documents that um, um, concern the review of the Mental Health Act a few years ago, one of the um, things that struck me with the, 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 the um, uh, service user narratives or the narratives of people from, uh, in this context, they called it the BAME community. Um, um, so that term was used until a couple of years ago, wasn't it, to refer to 
people of black, Asian or minority ethnic uh, background, BAME. And um, so comments from people from the BAME community, including service users and carers, with regard to the experience of people from that community in mental health services talk about the lack of cultural awareness of staff, the lack of BAME staff as therapists, uh, so therefore the people don't feel understood and end up getting turned away from services. Um, that um, their feeling is that the staff come with stereotypes uh, and, and this, this comment that was there more than once for reasons I don't understand, but it says that they have to make a special effort to treat us like human beings. So I thought, well, isn't that also um, a got more than a flavour of um, dehumanisation? So the ra just the ra how the racial trauma, if you like, is permeating um, through the system. So, it seems to me that race and racism can be regarded as a, as a colossal and undigested global trauma that's transgenerationally transmitted. And it's not my intention, and it isn't my view, actually, that this is something that needs to be laid on to particular people. I think this is something that concerns us all, actually. Um, and... Um, and behooves us to think about it more, to take account of it uh, when we think about the work we're doing um, with um, diverse communities, or any communities for that matter. I think particularly um, with regard to um, uh, forensic and criminal justice work. It feels it should really be core to the thinking within those settings. Um, and even in secondary care psychotherapy services, for example, um, thinking about those comments about the Mental Health Act, um, an observation of mine is that the high level of people from black and minority ethnic groups, particularly black, who don't complete courses of treatment, who start and drop out, who join groups end up being the angry, you know, they, as the, the location of disturbance for anger. Uh, so therefore, that, that stereotype of the angry black man or the angry black woman and end up leaving or just end up sitting for two years or however long the uh, course of treatment is uh, enraged. And, and, and that our, our um, professional uh, frameworks don't equip us with skills to work with that. That's one of the things that uh, is very striking to me. So not just forensic services, actually. Um, the stakes are higher, perhaps, in those settings, but actually this phenomenon is everywhere um, throughout our systems. Um, it's easily reproduced, though, within institu institutions involved with people who have histories of trauma and offending. Um, as, um, as I've said before, as the location of disturbance. It seems um, uh, the to be the location of disturbance, it usually means that you have a particular uh, vulnerability or a particular inclination uh, to attract the, what we might think of as projections. Um, 
uh, of a certain type. So it would make a lot of sense that where you have people who are maybe not very well, who maybe might be the people um, who have the least resilience, let's just say, against uh, the kind of onslaught, against the weathering, um, who end up ill, um, um, who end up enacting um, in dangerous ways, um, and uh, combined with people whose role it is, as well as to care, as well as to be compassionate, uh, as well as to protect the public, the public, but it's also to control. So where you get the, the combination together, it would make a lot of sense. Um, and, and where um, criminalization is a factor, um, and um, it would make sense that that would become the location of disturbance for um, uh, particular forms of racial trauma. One of the things I wanted to um, talk about um, tonight as well was that um, part of my work involves uh, facilitating staff groups and teaching staff, excuse me, who work in um, very, um, you know, intensive care services, um, forensic services for people diagnosed with personality disorder, um, women's um, uh, forensic services, for example, um, and who, so therefore, the services that are most intense, where there's the most acting out, where the service user group are the most, in many ways, vulnerable, um, but who um, are most likely to be abusive to staff. Um, that in those services that, that I've seen up and down England, anyway, um, uh, all over um, England, the uh, large numbers of staff who work in those settings are black um, and um, suffer racial abuse sometimes from the minute they start their shift to the minute they go home. And how those people can withstand um, the, the um, extent of that racial abuse, I do, I do not know. I do not know. Um, and it can only be, I, I can only see it anyway, I can only conceptualise that as, um, as traumatic, really. To be called the N-word several times in a day is, is deeply um, painful for anybody. Um, but this is what happens, this is the work that this group of people do, um, and to my knowledge, and Emma and I have spoken about this, there doesn't seem to be a um, professional position that taken that I'm aware of uh, around this. Um, so I want to make that point, that in those services where maybe not many people go, uh, there are groups of people who are um, subject to uh, intense uh, racial abuse and therefore I would suggest trauma. Um, it seems very clear that um, support, there's almost like two types of support are required. One type of support is required to understand um, um, 
this phenomena, I think, um, because often it isn't understood and it's kind of almost pushed to one side, I think. So there's a, um, a level of um, support required through education, I feel, uh, as well, that's about understanding um, the dynamics of racism, that's about understanding racial trauma in all its permutations and it, the implications for uh, the field of work that we're involved in. Uh, but there's also um, a uh, requirement, to my mind, that's about healing for people um, who are exposed to, uh, suffering from, um, uh, racial trauma as well. So I think there are two types of, of support, really, that are, are desperately needed um, in our services. Um, and also, it, it feels that um, this needs to be understood from the perspective of transgenerational racial trauma. And, and in saying that, I kind of hope that that um, reduces the, the sort of inclination to blame, um, you know, uh, and to lay sort of responsibility um, in a way that isn't helpful. As I say before, I think we're all involved in this. Um, it's not a simple binary um, uh, scenario. Um, it's something that concerns us all. Um, and that includes the difference between bias, because a lot of um, store, a lot of investment has been put into this issue of bias um, uh, and clarifying what our biases are and entertaining the biases. But in actual fact, when it comes to racial trauma, when it comes to the damage that is done uh, from childhood onwards, actually the issue is dehumanization. And you might have a bias against maybe promoting somebody from a particular background uh, to a job, um, but you wouldn't want to see them dead or you wouldn't want to see them hurt and that's the difference really here. Um, or you wouldn't think they deserved, you know, to be harmed. And that's, that's what dehumanization um, is about, really. So just to, just to say yeah, something about priority actions. Um, uh, it seems important to incorporate details of transgenerational racial trauma and sy the systemic implications of that uh, within our training programs. It seems important to support people to increase their awareness, um, particularly their ability to recognize distress um, as it's expressed by black people. Uh, and um, in order to help service users and colleagues, um, because that's, again, part of the issue, is that um, distress is experienced as anger or threatening you know, too often. So to understand how distress is expressed. Um, and that might be thought about in terms of authentic allyship. How to support people who are, um, how to support people who are exposed to um, this, um, you know, intensely painful and traumatic phenomena as a, as a, on a daily basis. And I've said authentic allyship programs because I, in the same way as I think a lot of emphasis is put on bias, I think um, 
too much emphasis has been placed on allyship programs that are performative and not authentic, really. And then also, in response to the wounds and the uh, need for healing, the importance of safe spaces uh, for people to talk about their experiences, um, uh, to uh, have reflective groups for where people can be validated, really, um, regarding their experiences. I'm, th I'm thinking about for staff here um, who work on the front line of um, uh, th these very difficult services, um, as well as um, um, thinking about clients as well who, who can also, of course, be on the receiving end of uh, racial abuse. Uh, in their, in, their in environments where they're supposed to be being looked after. And what that might do might just help with regard to resilience for navigating racial trauma because it won't stop. It isn't going to go away. It isn't something that can be completely eliminated. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I think that's my time. Thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anne. When you opened, you said it, you were going to offer something challenging, thought-provoking. Um, I was choked throughout, actually. So, thank you. Um, Anne, keep waiting a minute. So, I'm, I'm now going to ask uh, Professor Danny Kelly, who is the RCN Chair of Nursing Research here at Cardiff University, if he would make a presentation to Anne. pleased to give this to you Anne. a fantastic lecture thank you so much um okay everyone so um it's 7 15 now i think it's time that we break for our buffet i'm just checking with ben he's nodding yes so um, where we'll be is we'll be upstairs. Where some of you would have had coffee, water, Welsh cakes or something in the committee room. So it's, it's I'm just trying to orientate myself. Yes, it's upstairs. Um, there are signs. And we meet back here about 8 o'clock. So I'll see you then. <laughs>